If you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, we're we're going to be doing a series probably for the next five or six weeks. It's called Decision 2012. Now, I know some of you are thinking, what is going on here? It's not on politics, okay? I may do one talk on politics, not to try and get you to vote for anybody, but just to remind you of the privilege that we have as a nation to be a part of the process and then talk about it from a biblical framework. But this, this series is about the key decisions that you make as a person, as an individual, as a family throughout your week, throughout your days. Next week, I'm going to talk about the decision-making process, how to make decisions based on God's ways from God's word and to understand the principles that are involved in that. The bottom line of this series is basically deciding to do what Jesus wants me to do, how he wants me to live and how he wants me to make those decisions. Because the truth is, it's always these decisions that we make, loved ones, that that further our life or allow our lives to digress. And so we just want to talk not only about the process, but some of the key decisions in our lives that we need to make. I don't know about you, but I enjoy history. I taught, I taught junior high history for uh, five years. I have my favorite periods that I study and definitely my favorite personalities that I read about and read from. And book I'm, one of the one I'm presently reading is Killing Kennedy, The End of Camelot. And uh, it's a narrative on the JFK's assassination, the days that led up to it and, and into it. But I also come across an article by another writer named William Manchester who wrote a book called The Biography of a Failure that took place uh, within the context of the Kennedy assassination. And I want to read it to you this morning. It says, He begin his life with the classic handicaps and disadvantages. His mother was a powerfully built, dominating woman who found it difficult to love anyone. She'd been married three times, and her second husband divorced her because she beat him up regularly. Scary, huh? Kinda. Well, the father of the child that I'm describing was her third husband. He died of a heart attack a few months before the child's birth. As a consequence, the mother had to work long hours from his earliest childhood. She gave him no affection, no love, no discipline, and no training during those early years. She even forbade him to call her at work. Other children had little to do with him, so he was alone most of the time. He was absolutely rejected from his earliest childhood. He was ugly and poor, untrained, and unlovable. When he was 13 years old, a school psychologist commented that he probably didn't even know the meaning of the word love. During adolescence, the girls would have nothing to do with him, and he fought ongoing, uh, ongoing with the boys. Despite a high IQ, he failed academically and finally dropped out during his third year of high school. He thought he might find acceptance in the Marine Corps. They reportedly built men, and he wanted to be a man. But his problems went with him. The other Marines laughed at him and ridiculed him. He fought back, resisted authority, and was court-martialed and thrown out of the Corps with a dishonorable discharge. So there he was, a young man in his early 20s, absolutely friendless and shipwrecked in his life. He was scrawny and small in nature. 
He had an adolescent squeak to his voice. He was balding. He had no talent, no skill, no sense of worthiness. He didn't even have a driver's license. Once again, he thought that he could run from his problems, so he went to live in a foreign country, but he was rejected there too. Nothing had changed. While there, he married a girl who herself had been an illegitimate child and brought her back to America with him. Soon, she began to develop the same contempt for him that everyone else had displayed. She bore him two children, but she never enjoyed the status and respect. But he never enjoyed the status and respect that a father should have. His marriage continued to crumble. His wife demanded more and more things that he could not provide. Instead of being his biggest ally against the bitter world as he had hoped, she became his most vicious opponent. She could outfight him, and she learned to bully him. On one occasion, she locked him in the bathroom as punishment. Finally, she, uh, he forced, uh, finally, she forced him to leave the home. He tried to make it out on his own, but he was terribly lonely. After days of solitude, he went home and literally begged her to take him back. He surrendered all pride. He crawled. He accepted humiliation. He came on her terms. Despite his meager salary, he brought her $78 as a gift, asking her to take it and to spend it in any way that she wished. But she simply laughed at him. She bullied his, she belittled his feeble attempts to supply the family's needs. She ridiculed his failure. She even made fun of his sexual impotence in front of friends. At one point, he fell on his knees and wept bitterly as the greater darkness of his private nightmare began to envelop him. Finally, in silence, he pleaded no more. No one wanted him. No one had ever wanted him. He was the most rejected man. His ego was shattered in the dust. The next day, he was, strangely, he was a strangely different man. He arose, he went to the garage, took out a rifle that he had hidden there. He carried it with him to his newly acquired job at a book storage building. And from a window on the sixth floor of that building, shortly after noon, November 22nd, 1963, he sent two shells crashing into the head of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald, the rejected, unlovable failure, killed the man who more than any other embodied all of the success, beauty, wealth, and family affection that he himself had lacked. In firing that rifle, he utilized the one skill he had learned in his entire miserable lifetime. While Oswald's personal problems do not excuse his violent behavior, and certainly I don't seek to absolve him for this murderous act. As I read the Kennedy story, and I've read a number of others about him, and read this one and read that story around it, I often wonder if there were people along the way who did, tried, or could have ever really touched his life. Obviously, almost 50 years have gone by. It doesn't matter, but these are the questions that I often think about. How, how does God teach, touch people today? What does he do to reach the unlovable, unlovable, the miserable, the rejected, and even the downcast? Because see, I, I honestly, loved ones, I want to be a person who makes a difference. But it can be overwhelming when you begin to think, how can I do it? How can we do it? How can it really happen? And I want to look at a passage today really concerning ministry is kind of a launching place to understand some things that we can do to reach people. Because I want to tell you, reaching people will not happen automatically for Jesus. 
I mean, it, it, it doesn't just happen by osmosis. People have to be intentional about it. People have to be gracious toward it. And they have to begin to step out and boldly and courageously speak to people's lives. I'm not going to take the time to ask you, but well, I'll ask you. You tell me, what's the word on the street about Christians? What do people say about them? Hypocrite? Pushy? Fanatics? Bible thumpers? Ignorant? Pardon me? Haters, judgmental? Yeah. Blind followers, prejudice, all of those things. Yeah. Those are, the, 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 that's the word on the street about us, un, unfortunately. And, and what's really unfortunate is people live that out. They personify those things. Now, what's interesting is, is what I've learned is like, let's, let's, let's just take one, judgmentalism or being judgmental. Did you know that we have to make judgments? There's not a person in this room that's over 20 years old that doesn't make judgments every week. You have to live that way. You're at work. You've got to make a judgment on somebody. Hire them or whatever. That's what we do. That's, that's what life is about. Judgments is an action and an activity that we do every day. Judgmentalism, though, is an attitude. And too many Christians, it's not about making judgments. We've got to make judgments. This is right. This is wrong. But it's a judgmentalism that's an attitude that is condescending that looks down on people or certain things. The big one we hear about is a hypocrite. What is that? It's simply people who... Well, they talk a lot, but they don't walk it. They'll pick out this and this person, but then they'll go and they'll live a totally different way. See, that's what a hypocrite is. Now, I have a line for those people. I say you've got to be bigger than a hypocrite to hide behind one. But the bottom line is, is there is a lot of hypocrisy. And not that any of us do it perfectly. We don't. But we should be growing in how we are able to relate to outsiders so that we can dispel some of these taglines that people put on us. And so this morning, I want to look at a few things that I'm, I'm learning and being reminded of in terms of ministry on how to reach people and how to, really how to minister and, and to touch people. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now, let me, set the, let me set the context up for you because God is speaking to his nation that has a leader king and all of his nation was called to follow him. The United States is not his nation. Okay? We're not, we, we, we didn't, you know, God didn't, I mean, he founded us, I guess, in the broad sense of the term, but we're not God's nation, and we're not made up of his people other than those who call upon his name. So we have to be careful that we don't make all the application to that, because God is going to speak specifically to his people. But there are principles that I believe are clearly applicable to your life and my life to help change a family, a community, ultimately, hopefully, a nation and a world as we begin to live out the things that God calls all people to live out and not to live with narrow-mindedness, judgmentalism, ignorance, all of those negative things that are out there. 
So as what is happening here in the first part of Second Chronicles chapter 7, the temple has taken seven years to build and now they have dedicated it and the people are celebrating, they're eating and they're feasting and they're worshiping and they're praying and the glory of God has come down in such a way that people literally, they're just, they just fall down on, this, on the pavement, it says, the concrete and they're worshiping and giving praise to God. And then it says they eat and they celebrate and they all go home with happy hearts. It's a beautiful picture. The place where God lives is being celebrated for them. Now, let me remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, is very clear and reminds us that we're the temple. God dwells in you and me today. He's not, he's not in this little sheep shed, this little gymnasium, banquet hall, whatever you want to call it. He lives in you and me. And the only time as God is here is when you and I are here. So understand that, that we're the temple today that God lives in and wants to be expressed through. So this big celebration is coming. And after everybody has left, Solomon, the wisest man, the king of that time, it says in verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and he said to him, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If you're here today, you need to know God's chosen you as a temple. That he wants to dwell in you and live through you and be his expression of life to our world. But he says to Solomon, he kind of gives him a warning. He says, if I close the sky so there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, then know this, and this is the key verse, and my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face and turn for their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to pray, to their prayer from this place. Ministry, how do we touch people? I think there's a few things here that we can see that God says, I want you to always be aware of and know about. Number one is God's priority always involves people. See, there was a time when I thought that, that, that the Lord just uses programs and crusades and big crowds and large churches to reach the world. Now, he uses those. He can use them. He will use them. But God's heart will always begin with individual people. Guess who? You and me. He's not going to use the preacher. I'm sorry, he just doesn't. We're pretty limited. He's not even going to use the TV evangelists and all those people that go to millions of homes or have the opportunity. God's MO, his modus operandi, is to use you and me. I mean, I used to think that Saturday night, man, I bet you God's probably just really convicting people right now. You know, you got those people sitting on their couches having a bud watching the, the giants. You know, whatever they're doing, go to church tomorrow. I don't think he does that. I mean, once in a while he might. I don't know if there's any, anybody here that's ever come to church because of that. You were sitting at home on a Saturday night and just got, felt like God speak to you. Yeah, probably not. There's a few, but not here. I used to think that. You know, that's how God moved, but he doesn't. He does it through people. He says, if my people who are called by my name 
You and I, loved ones, have this privileged position and responsibility that our identity is in God, the creator of the universe. And because of that relationship, we are able to enter in, to move into the redemptive purposes of what he has for our lives, into our families, into this church, into our community, and even at points into this world. What an incredible privilege and great responsibility. But sometimes people think that the way you do that is just by going to Bible studies. Well, let's just go to another Bible study. And there's people who begin to think that gaining knowledge about God is, is the end all to the end all. You ever seen people like that? Our, our culture, our United States, has so many great Bible teachers, so many tapes, CDs, conferences, conventions, and retreats, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, you could become a full-time Bible studier. Well, pastor, are you against that? Absolutely not. But at some point, you've got to move from simply reading about and knowing about to do something with it. See, a lot of people, man, they become spiritual eggheads and they just grow in this knowledge, but their life isn't exuding anything of the love and the grace of Christ and reaching people with his life, which is the ultimate thing. First of all, that we become transformed, begin to look like Jesus, and then we begin to live like him wherever we go. Are you, are you being changed? Well, what, what, what do you... What do you well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, let me give you a couple questions. Are you the same today as you were a year ago? Do you think and function and live the same, or are you changing? If I was to talk to your spouse or a good friend, would they say, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, they're starting to look and sound more like Jesus every day? How about this? Do you spend any time thinking about maybe grieving over the condition of this world? Or is your life so consumed and focused on you and yours that you really don't even have a clue about what's happening out there? How would you feel right now standing before the Lord today? Are you generally doing and living for? Is the impact of your life something that you could say, you know, Lord, I, I, man, I just gave it my best. I, I, I did to the best of my ability everything you wanted me to. Can you say that, yeah, that's what I'm doing? Could you honestly say that your life, my life is a force for Jesus? That the way I live, the things I do, the way I talk, and I'm really doing the best I can to follow God's ways, and that the people around me in my relational orbit would be able to receive and say, I, I know they love God. Is there anything you should be doing that you're not, that you know God has kind of spoke to you to do? Is there anything you're doing that you know God says, don't do, stop? And if you know, if you said yes to either one of those, I would say, why? Why are you continuing? And then the last one is, is there any person that you find yourself praying for this season? Are you praying for anybody right now 
that you want them to know Jesus personally. Not because you cram them down their throat, but because you live a life that is open and available. That whenever you would have the opportunity, you'd be able to speak to them about him. I love the story of George Mueller. He was a Christian evangelist who, who became the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England in the 1800s. This guy worked with, saved 10,000, cared for 10,024 orphans in his life. And he took most of them off the streets to provide them with an education and care for as long as they were in his orphanage. Over 10,000 orphans. Now get this, his focus though wasn't even to care for them and to give to them and help them get educated. You know what his focus was? He wanted every one of those kids to understand that through his hands and life that they would understand the faithfulness and love of God. That there was this God who loved them and cared for them through his life and through his ministry. See, ministries always begins with the people, my people who were called by my name. For us to touch this world. I love what one of my mentors used to say. He said, there will never be a move of God without a man or woman moved by God. My question and challenge to us today, how are you being moved by the one who calls you his son or his daughter? Where are you being moved? To minister as one of his kids. You have his name inscribed upon your life. Luke tells us that. The book of Revelation tells us that. Son and daughter. People will say, well, you know, Pastor, like we talked, they call us hypocrites. They call us narrow-minded, ignorant, stupid, all those things. I really don't want to be out there and be a part of that. That's just a little too hard. It feels like I'm always getting trampled on. Well, you know, Jesus said something to that. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5.13. Well, you're the salt of the earth. If a salt loses its flavor, what is it? It's good for nothing but to be what? Trampled on by men. I wonder if the church is trampled on today for two reasons. Number one, because of all of those things that we noted about the church. And then secondly, because we've lost our salt. We can't go out there and love people and, and show them what Jesus was really like. If we're living the life that Christ called us to, to be his people in this time, to be different from the world, not weird, but to be different, guess what? I believe we'd have a greater influence on the people around us. Secondly, you'll see that ministry always happens through humble people. Humility is such a difficult word to define, and it's often harder to live out. But this is something the Bible tells us that we're to do. James 4 says that humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't you love that? Humble yourself. Have you ever noticed that if you don't humble yourself, God will? I mean, this happens to me. It usually happens in front of a crowd. I don't like that. And, I, I, and, I, and I'm honestly telling you, I don't think I'm a humble person, but I'm really working on it. 
I, I really want to be humble, not because I want to be lifted up, but the scripture says that if we humble ourselves, then God will lift us up. I just want to be able to do what God wants me to do because I'm humble before him and before people. See, sometimes we think that humble people are quiet, meek, mild, never get upset. That's not true at all. Jesus was the most humble person. He was the humble king. but He got pretty upset about stuff. I mean, even the Pharisees, they called them the, the hunchbacks because they walked around like this, you know, kind of, you know, hunched over trying to look humble. And Jesus said that they're the most prideful people in the Bible and the ones that he always indicted for their pride. It's only through humility that one can begin to do the steps that I'm going to talk about. I've been around a lot of guys guys that golf, guys that love to fish. And it's interesting that, you know, a lot of times when do you fish and golf and do those guy things? You do it on Saturday morning, Sunday morning. Sometimes I've been in groups of guys where we're together and we'll talk about a Bible study or a prayer thing we're going to or church on Sunday. And, and one guy will go, well, <laughs> I'm going golfing. I ain't going to that kind of stuff. And Jesus never get a hold of me to get me to miss my golf, my tea time, or my fishing time to go do that. What's, what's that person really saying? You know, what they're really saying is, I'm selfish. It's all about me. And it's all about what I want to do. And I'll almost guarantee you that that same person probably has a difficult time loving and serving their family because they're more concerned about what they do, what they want, what they desire. See, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It is sim- simply thinking of yourself less. Being humble is all about acknowledging who we are and who God is in his largeness. Who we are in our sinfulness and who God is in our largeness. It's freely admitting our inadequacies before the one who is totally adequate and can meet every one of our needs. Truly humble people recognize that and it will begin to bleed into being a consistent person of prayer. I, I was in board meetings this last week in Des Moines, and they, they, they asked us to do this devotional thing. And um, I, I didn't really like doing it, but because you kind of think, okay, well, you know, you got leaders in there, and you got other pastors, and, you know, what are you going to say? And, um, you know, I think, okay, well, let me see. Did I give a good talk in the last year that I could take something from? No. Um, my devotional life is really good, but, you know, do they want to hear about that? I don't know. So finally, I just took a flyer. And I wasn't going to try and impress them with anything. And, and I felt like part of this humility thing that the Lord's trying to massage into my life, it says, you tell them about something you went through. I don't want to do that. No, you tell them. Well, I've had kind of a tough eight months. It's the last eight months, and few people know about it. A lot of people don't. I'll probably share with it probably in sometime in the next 10 years. And uh, when, when I get around to it, but, but the Lord said, no, you, you tell them about you and what God's done and, and where you were such a wreck for a while. Well, it's really funny. You know, people have a hard time with that. I'm sitting there, I'm sitting in the middle of the table. It's a long, you know, long boardroom table. And I'm sitting in the middle and I got a group of people over here and a group of people over here. And what's really interesting is I'm talking, these people here are really engaged and they're loving and they're sharing and they're 
encouraging. And these people over here are looking at me like I got lobsters coming out of my ears. I mean, they were just like, I'm sure they were thinking, and you're a pastor, and you're on this board. <laughs> what, what are you doing, you know? And, but, but there's something that God is teaching me. I want to teach us about humility. That we're so inadequate. But don't we put up a front that we're so good. And God's saying, you know what? You're going to stop that because if you don't become humble, then I'm going to get to humble you. And he kind of has done that over the course of the year. Fortunately, it hasn't been too bad. But you see, loved ones, what a humble person does is they come to this place where we understand God is at work and intervening. And we walk around in our life and we basically make this declaration, God, if I don't have you working in my life, I can't do this. Can I just tell you what I'm learning? I can't lead this church anymore. It is so far beyond me that if I don't have God at work in my life and in this place, you know what, we're not going to make it. Sorry. I'm I'm, I'm where I am. And if I don't have God, we ain't going to make it. But can I tell you something else? Some of you aren't going to make it if you don't humbly come before God either. Your marriage isn't going to make it. Your kids are not going to be able to see the true God because you don't come to them in humility and get down and say, we got to bring God into this situation. You're going to continue to power up on them and think you can control them and run their life. Uh-uh. We've we got to come to this place where we need Jesus to come. It's one of the things we do as a staff now. Started this a few couple, few months ago. Trying to get more consistent. Sometimes we just, you know, we put our heads down, we get busy and forget. But on Tuesdays and Fridays, this is what we do at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. We just meet for 15 minutes. Come out here in the courtyard. And we just check in with each other. How you doing? One purpose of it is this, is to take about a few minutes and just pray and invite God back into our day. Because you know what? I've told our staff, if God isn't in this, it's not going to happen. Or we'll be able to function and do all the things that we need to do, but there won't be the residence and the touch of God. And we are going to come together twice a week just to simply say, God, we need you to do what we're doing. That's part of me having to grow in humility. It's part of our staff having to grow in humility. It's part of our church to have to grow in humility. Proud people say, I can do this on my own. I can figure it out and work it out. Humble people say, Jesus, I need you. Second thing is that people who will pray and seek him, you know that we we have a big deal around here about encouraging people to spend time with God every day. I couldn't emphasize this more or enthusiastically embrace it more for you. Where you get up in the morning and you spend a time with Christ. Maybe it's 30, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 10, I don't know. But there's just a moment you start your day and if you do what I do, I get up, I grab my coffee and I pray and I read the Bible and I journal and I write and I pray some more and try and hear God's voice for my day. We, I am a total believer in that. You know I push that really hard here. If you don't do that, I encourage you to do it. But there's kind of a, there's a little bit of a thought that I want to make sure that you don't miss. Sometimes we think if we do that for 10 or 20 or 30 or 60 minutes, whatever you do it for, that what do we do? We close it up. 
okay, Jesus, I'll see you today or tomorrow. Stay right here, bro. And we, and we take off in our day. No. See, humble people and people who really understand prayer, they say, Jesus, this was such a wonderful, intimate time with you. Now, I want to invite you into every part of my day. So that we become people who are constantly and consistently in prayer. See, Paul never saw it as this compartment in the morning. Jesus never saw it as simply a compartment in the morning where he did it with his father for a little bit and then left without him. No, he was continually in conversation with him. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, that we are to pray without stopping. How do we do that? Man, I can't even pray for 10 minutes. Well, what it is, it's an attitude. It's where you live your life with a God consciousness. Your whole life is being lived before God in communion and communication. Constant prayer is simply a God consciousness where you see everything in your life in reference to him. Consider this. If you see something good, well, give praise and thank Jesus for it as you're walking down the street. Wow, what a beautiful day. Thank you, Lord. This is incredible. I get to live in Northern California where it's so beautiful in the middle of October. If you see something evil, ask God to make it right. Or better yet, say, God, did you bring me in this position, in this place at this time to do something? Is there something I'm supposed to do? If you see someone without Jesus, ask God to draw them to himself. If you see trouble, seek him in his ways so you can get through it. Have a prayer time for sure, but pray after your prayer time as well. And you will begin to pulsate with new power as you tackle your daily task. If you're going into a heavy-duty meeting, you're walking in and say, God, I just want to, I just need you now. That, that I'm in control and that I can think clearly. God, I'm having this really difficult time with my spouse. And I'm going to come home tonight, and we didn't finish last night that took place. Would you give me a gentle spirit and gentle words to turn away the anger that is there? My kid is going south. They're heading off on drugs. God, would you give me wisdom? And maybe instead of powering up on that kid, you take him and you embrace him and you determine right and wrong, but you let them know no matter what happens, you're going to love them and accept them and forgive them. See, that's what constantly being in prayer does because then when you come to these crossroads in your life that become so difficult, guess what? Well, now you can begin to make better decisions. We're going to be launching 40 days of prayer and fasting in a couple of weeks to refocus on Christ and his purposes for us. We're going to have devotionals available to you. When I talk about 40 days of prayer and fasting, we're not going to fast for 40 days, or some of you might. I doubt it, but uh, I won't. Um, But I'm going to fast during uh, each day different things. Some days it'll be food, some days it'll be technology, and we'll give you more information about that. But we want to begin to refocus our life on Christ and this church on what God has for us in this coming season. Last thing is this. If we're going to touch people in our community, we've got to be a people who take God's word seriously. Notice what he says. When my people, who are called by my name, 
turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin and I will hear their prayers. We need to see Jesus, God, in all of his awesomeness. Everything that he's done for us, we can be so thankful for that. His death on the cross, his resurrection, his death on the cross that brought forgiveness of sins, his resurrection, the power of his resurrection that made it all true and possible. But sometimes we get a bad understanding of who God really is. I love the grace of God. Scripture says that it is a gift. Do you know what the grace of God is? The grace of God is God's favor upon you. His favor towards you. He says he gives this to you as a gift. But this is where the church has taken that. We begin to see God's grace not as a gift, but as a free pass. That we can basically stampede this grace that God said, I'm going to give my son to die for you, and we can do whatever we want and just kind of go, (laughs) no big deal. It's kind of like we see God, this heavenly father up here who loves us and has given us so much, we see him as what? Well, we kind of see him as the big Santa Claus in the sky who really doesn't care what we do, how we live. Or we simply see him as this great-grandfather who just, you know, anything goes, man. And I want to challenge us as a church that we come back to understand how we live is really important. That sin causes consequences. If this holy God who has paid the price, the ultimate price through his son Christ, you know what? He's not going to simply go, no problem, dude. Carry on my wayward son or daughter. Sometimes we miss some of the scriptures because we love grace so much. And I love grace. I'm so thankful for it. But God also says this. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God be? And if the righteous is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And it sounds kind of hard, and I know you're thinking, oh, come on, Pastor, lighten the load a little bit. Well, that's what it says. God's serious. And, And there should be a sobriety about our life at times that we receive the grace, but we also live the truth. I get a picture of this that um, if, if you had this big pool, he says here that the righteous, those who know Christ, are barely saved, and the other ones, man, they don't have a chance if they don't come. It's kind of like if I'm scarcely barely saved and I'm living this life, I get this picture of this big swimming pool. And we're all around it. All of a sudden, you know, they're going to have this race, and you've got to get to the other side. So Michael Phelps is the first up. And he's going to swim this pool. Well, this is the caveat. About halfway through, they're going to send a shark. See if he can get you. So all of a sudden, Michael Phelps dives in. He's swimming, 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 swimming. And all of a sudden, this shark is released to go see if he can catch him. And Michael Phelps gets to the end, jumps out. And just as he jumps out, this big old white shark just, boom, nips at his heel and grabs a piece of it. Whew. 
He made it. Minus a piece of his heel. Everyone goes, wow, great job, Michael, you made it. As a matter of fact, you just set a new record. You made it in record world record time. You beat the shark. Oh, good. You scarcely made it. And guess what? Krista, you're next. <laughs> I'm no Michael Phelps. Exactly. See, it's, 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 it's work. It's, there's something to this that we have to take seriously. he says discipline or, or, or judgment. Discipline starts in the house. Remember what God said? He's talking to his people. He's not talking, I'm sorry, because I don't believe this and I don't talk about it this way, but some of us, he, he's not talking about all the sinners and the pagans and the bad people out there. He's talking about you and me. This is where it starts. Their judgment is on themselves because they reject. And sometimes we sit back and forget that. See, you know what you and I are, loved ones? When I used to get colds, I used to take this thing called a contact pill. And you take it, it was for 12 hours. Remember how those little pellets in it, those time-released pellets? I'd take it. What was the purpose of it? Over time, these little pellets would be released to the sick areas of my body. And within time, they would bring healing. This is a picture that I have for our church. You and I are time capsules. That when we walk out that door, uh, Monday through Saturday now, you and I are a time capsule that is released for six days, called to bring healing and health to the hurt, the brokenness, the sickness of our world. But the church today, you know what we've become? We've become placebos. And some of us go out there and we're living in such a way that there is no power to our lives because we're the very people that people talk about. We're hypocrites. We talk about God, but we don't live for God. And if we're going to reach our community, this world, we have to make a decision every day that we're going to live for his glory and humbly do it because we need his power to do it. We can't focus on those folks out there. We can only change us and allow Jesus to work through us. You all know I'm a grandpa. You know the reason why I love it so much is because it takes me, two reasons, it takes me back to when I was raising Jamie and Joel, who I love more today than I do when they were younger. And Joel has this little kid, Isaac, Calm eyes. He just turned three last Saturday. I love that kid. I, 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 listen, I spoil him. He lives on candy corn when he comes over to our house. I love it. We get to share it. Two for me, one for him, three for me, one for him. You know, I'm pretty fair. Listen, I, I really think if, if he come up to me today, he's coming over later today, and if he come up to me and said, Papa, would you buy me a car? I'd probably go, what kind? I mean, I just, I love him. And he's the sweetest little kid. But what I've noticed in the last couple of months when he comes, he's, well, he's a young kid now. He's two, three years old. And he does things. And now you know what I have to do? 
I got to use a papa voice. Eyes? No. No. That is unacceptable. I said no. You're not going to do that here. And then we'll move on and play and eat candy corn and do all those bad things that we shouldn't do. But that's what I do. You know why? When I have to raise my voice to him, does that mean I love him any less than when I'm giving him candy corn? Are you kidding me? The Bible says it's because I love him more. Because I know that I am training him to hear God's voice when God says no. And he needs to understand yes and no, right and wrong. And loved ones, we need to do the same thing with love, with care, with grace. And when we do that as a church, when you do that as a person, can I tell you what's going to happen? We're going to begin to infect and touch a world. Amen? Stand with me, please, if you would. Father, we don't ever want to come and trespass on your grace. We receive it as a free gift of your favor. But I pray that you would start in this pastor's life, that I would see your priority as people, that you call me to a new place of humility, and you want us to pray and to touch people because the times are serious and urgent. It doesn't mean we can't have fun, laugh, have a great time. But Lord, we want to, we want to do your work and follow you. And I pray, God, that you would use this church in this next season to make decisions for 2012 and beyond to be difference makers. We believe for that. We ask for that. And thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Your love. God bless you. Have a great day.